0: You found the Diggin Oak Island podcast, the podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you so much for downloading and listening to our podcast. If you have been listening to and enjoying this show, please help us out by becoming a patron. You can go to patreon.com slash Oak Island to learn more. First, let me uh, give a shout out to our two new patrons from this week, Michael and Steve. Thank you guys so, so much for helping keep this podcast going. I am absolutely flabbergasted by the amount of support we've been getting over there on Patreon, and I can't tell you how much it means. Uh, Certainly keep me going and keep doing this podcast for as long as as you guys need me to. Uh, Now, I like to start off these shows with answering some of your questions, so let us begin with the aforementioned Steve, who also wrote me on Patreon, um, and he said, Hi Dave, just signed up for Patreon, something I was planning to do for a while. Uh, Then your latest podcast pushed me over the edge. Really enjoyed the show uh, and started listening last year. I live in Bangkok, Thailand, since 1991, and I work in international business. Your podcast helps keep me connected to my roots and is a welcome relief compared to all the chaos around the world today. Some interesting connections I would like to share, kind of like a sixth degree of separation. I'm from Jesuit Bend in deep, deep South Louisiana. My mom's folks were Acadians expelled from Nova Scotia and settled there over 100 years ago. I'll be checking out your jazz show. Hey, I'll mention more of that in a bit. Uh, I love the Jean Lafitte connection and jokingly say that Oak Island treasure was moved to Louisiana by Jean Lafitte. <laughs> Lots of stories about buried Japanese treasure here in Thailand, including in the, near, in the area nearby the village where my wife is from. But the connection which pushed me over was your last podcast, where you said yours was a pirate Pittsburgh Pirate household. Uh, I've been a diehard fan since 1972, so you know the suffering I've endured over the years. As I said, I was planning to sign up, but being a pe- fellow Pirates fan, uh, that was the icing on the cake. Keep up the good work. It's appreciated. Have a great day. Look forward to the next show, Steve. Again, Steve, uh, I can't thank you enough for... for um, Your donations on Patreon, uh, it means everything to us, um, and thank you so much for writing in. Uh, It's just easier to do all this than type you back, so I thought I'd just uh, answer you here. Um, You are not the first person to bring up the Pirates connection, uh, and it has nothing to do with Oak Island and Captain Kit. Uh, We have a friend of ours that is a very... um, uh connected to the pirates uh he works for the pirates uh and he's very very close friends of ours and uh so as soon as he started working for the pirates which was only a few years back um, uh, me and everybody in this household became diehard pirates fans and i gotta tell you when if he should ever leave the organization which he eventually will i'm sure um it's difficult to imagine not rooting for the pirates a great organization we went out there to pittsburgh I love that city and um uh, I love the stadium. Absolutely amazing. Anyway, uh, also, you mentioned the, uh, the jazz show. Yep. Bourbon Street Bistro, 2 p.m. WDVR-FM. Tell Alexa to play. 2 p.m. on Wednesdays. Tell Alexa to play uh, WDVR and you'll hear me doing that. And of course, I've expund- expounded many times, if that's a word, uh, on this podcast about Jean Lafitte. I love it. Anyway, thank you for your message, Steve. Uh, come join us over on Patreon this week, if you can, for our live discussion. Uh, that happens as the show is airing in the U.S. So at 9 o'clock Eastern time uh, on the, in the U.S., I'm usually on the Patreon, uh, just sort of throwing in some comments and answering some questions uh, during the show. Anyway. Let's go now to another friend, Daniel, who writes, I thought the season premiere was one of the most exciting episodes ever. It is amazing to see how advanced this search has become. With all the equipment and people they have brought on board, it is truly mind-blowing. Also, I noticed the attitude has changed. It seems to have gone from at least in mindset from a treasure hunt to a recovery operation. Even Craig, who seems to parse his words very carefully, talked with an almost certainty to the drill crew about bringing up gold. Also, I noticed one thing when it comes to the water sampling. If you look at the map of the water sampling that Dr. Pierre Poufal shows with the gold and blue dots representing gold and non-gold bore shafts, you will notice dead center in the triangle of gold-laden F4, E8, and K7 is borehole H6.5 with no gold present. Is that possible? I don't see how at least Marty didn't ask about how that could possibly be true. Well, he did because... In the, um, let me stop here. Right. He, he did do that because in the, for the time where he's talking to Pierre Poufal, um, he mentioned something, I think it was Marty. He mentioned something about the fact that, you know, not seeing it in every one of these boreholes makes you think that this is not natural. So he did notice that. Um, I just think what we were looking at in last week's show was a little sort of maybe even a bit premature, right? Because we're just sort of getting initial numbers and not much more than that. Really? Um, I, Uh, This is just the kind of thing that we also, (laughs) as we move forward with this kind of stuff, this is just the kind of thing we really don't get all the time. It's often glossed over stuff like, why is it here and not there? That kind of stuff, you you generally don't get that in there. And we're forced here to sort of speculate. Um, I do think, however, Daniel, just to go back to something else, you said that you're right about this attitude of treasury hunt and now to a recovering really makes me nervous. <laughs> I'm going to say this a lot I think this year, but they are really hyping this up and this show this episode did that as well. And if they come up empty this year, boy oh boy. That's not going to be good for the future of the show. I got to tell you that. Anyway, Daniel continues. Your first podcast of the season was awesome. I chuckled after a few minutes in realizing how much I was enjoying your deep dive, detailed dissection of the show. Deep dive detailed dissection. Daniel Great alliteration. Anyway, continues. You mentioned you didn't quite get why they were comparing the samples to seawater. My thoughts on this are that Dr. Pufal mentioned that if you looked at seawater with a powerful enough equipment, you would see every element in the periodic table. If you look at freshwater, you would only see the elements leached into that sample. I believe they compared the two only to give some sort of reference to, We can compare it to other samples which were zero, but that doesn't really give you a sense of how elevated the levels really are. Okay, let me stop again here um, and maybe repeat myself a bit. These are the kind of things we don't really, how do I put this? We, We don't hear this stuff, and that makes me nervous, right? Why not tell us exactly what this means? Why not tell us exactly these things? Why is there some in this hole and not in this one? Could there be a natural explanation? Uh, why not compare this to an actual sample? Why bring us this stuff, this gold in the water stuff, without having a, I don't know, drill a hole on the other side of the island and tell me what that reads? Give us a good comparison. Find us some Archive data, s- anything, give us a real comparison. That kind of lack of information is what fuels skeptics and critics. and I guess to some extent makes this podcast necessary. <laughs> okay, he continues. Here's an unrelated question. Do you know if the picture they always show of the VI parchment is a real picture or the actual paper uh, of the actual paper or a recreation? Do we know what happened to this piece of parchment? Also, Billy Gerhardt, do you know his story? How did he become a member of the inner circle? He never says much, but Rick and Marty seem to show him a lot of respect when he does. I can't wait for the next episode, and of course, your post-show analysis. Keep up the good work. Okay, if I'm not mistaken, and I might be, it is a photo of the parchment. It's an archive photo that you always see, because I don't know that anybody has the actual piece anymore. But it, is an, but it is a photo. And the reason I say this is because even though I have no idea where it really is now, the story goes that Blair, Frederick Broad, gave it to William Chapel, who then gave it to his son, Mel. And now this was all in the 20th century, like deep into the 60s, right? When Mel Chapel was still involved. Um, so photography wouldn't have been out of the realm of, possibility, right? It wouldn't have been a problem to take a picture of it at some point, even at the earliest points of that. It wouldn't have been too big a deal to take a picture. It would have been expensive, but it could be done. And certainly by the 30s and the 40s, it it certainly could be done. Uh, and I think that's what we're looking at here, as opposed to, and I compare this to the 90-foot stone, where, where we're not seeing any actual image or sketching or etching or anything, tracing anything of what that was. We're just seeing an artist rendering of what it could be, I guess, is the best way to put it. And now, as far as Billy's concerned, that's a great question. I hate to tell you, I really don't get too much into the backstory of the guys on the show. I know he's a contractor out of the Lunenburg area. Um, I'm not sure if he had any connection pre laguna to the island. He's like a does like home improvement contracts and stuff, so I'm sure he was the nearest guy with the kind of equipment they needed and the kind of guy who can operate it. Um, it's a really good question, but you know what, Daniel? Um, I have a recollection of him being interviewed on another Oak Island podcast, of which there is one or two more. So see if you can search that one out and uh, and see what you can find about him. I think he tells his backstory on there. Again, memory isn't really working here. Okay. Thank you again. Let's go now to Don, who says, Dave, thank you for all you're doing with your podcast. Most of all, thanks for filling my Oak Island hunger during the summer months. You're welcome. Uh, I just finished your last podcast on listener questions. I thought for sure... Someone would write in and explain the likely source of the silver that Dr. Spooner and Dr. Lukman found during their testing of the water. I don't think the silver they saw is from a treasure. I think it is certainly searcher-related, and not just any searcher, but actually the modern-day Lagina's search efforts. If my understanding of their exploration is correct, then I suspect that the metal caissons that they drove down in the, in the money pit area are welded together, and as they attach one length to the next. If they did indeed weld them together, then the welding rods likely contained silver, and that silver has now leached into the surrounding water. I hope this theory is wrong, but it seems pretty easy to figure out to me, so my hopes for the testing is not too high. But I hope Rick and Marty can prove my hypothesis wrong. Thanks again for all, your, uh, all you do, and hopefully this year is the last year. <laughs> of your Oak Island podcast, Don in Atlanta. Don, I can't imagine that, um, but who knows? I mean, 220-something years, this could be it. Uh, Don, you sent this before last week's episode, and I'm sorry I didn't get it in the last show, uh, but I wonder if after the revelation of the possibility of gold down there as well, in last week, if you'd still maintain this hypothesis. Also, I'm not at all sure that these cans are welded together. I don't think they are. I think they're kind of tongue and groove together. Um, And then obviously gravity pushing down on top of each other seals it off. So I don't think they're welded together. Either way, what we're going to see here today in this show is a piece of metal that certainly could appear to be something that would be used in a welding process just from the nature of the look at it. So it's actually kind of a a really cool thing that you uh, throw that in there this week. And we'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, we're certainly going to learn more about this in the coming weeks, so check back with us later in the season and tell me what you think then. Um, thank you so much for writing and, of course, for listening. Now, let's go now to Scott, who says, we all want it to be true, but there is a lot online about gold deposits in Nova Scotia. Who knows? And having sent the email, what are the chances that there would be a natural gold in the Money Pit area and potentially only in the Money Pit area? How crazy would that be? Thanks for the great podcast, Scott. Okay, Scott also sent me a nice graphic uh, and with um, some great little uh, photos, you know, where all the gold deposits and mining operations have been done throughout Nova Scotia. So it is absolutely in the ground there. There's also a Wikipedia link he sent me about all the gold discovered in Nova Scotia. Great research there, Scott. Um, It's Natural seems very plausible to me. We're going to get to that in this episode as well. So uh, we're going to need to look further into this, so hang on to that one. Okay, thanks, Scott. Let's head over now to Gary, our man in Yorkshire, our research man in Yorkshire, who writes, "Uh, Hi, Dave. Great podcast on episode one of the new season. Thought you might be interested in the attached announcement I came across in the British newspaper archives. The announcement appeared in the Blythe News dated 29th, June 1897. As is usual with these syndicated news items from abroad, it appears in other publications around the same date with minor amendments. The source appears to be via Dalziel Telegram, a transatlantic relay service with no author identified. I suspect this announcement was an attempt to drum up more cash. I have always suspected that the fabled 90 foot stone was also devised to drum up more cash. What other reason could there be in the state? I could rather be to state in code how much is buried below? I, like you, am intrigued by the sudden interest being shown by the authorities and the work being carried out. I raised an issue last season on the shoddy archaeological work being carried out on the road. I agree that I think something historically significant may, be, may have been discovered. Keep up the good work. Regards, Gary in Yorkshire, England. Okay. Um, I read the piece. It is fascinating. <laughs> it says something to the effect of... Uh, you know that they actually found gold or they found treasure. It's it's all very strange the way it's written, um, and it's also a little bit difficult to read. But it's it's certainly a fantastical story written in a very small, you know, format. It's only a few paragraphs, um, and it's certainly interesting in the way the way you know it's kind of a snapshot in time, right? Um, you know what? When you bring up the ninety foot stone. Uh, I've never out and out said here on this program that I think the stone is a fabrication, but I've come very, very close. And I've come very, very close to believing that Um, the thing that stops me is there are a lot of researchers, you know, including Randall Sullivan, who's written the um, the sort of official book of the Curse of Oak Island who says over and over again, insists that there are so many people who claim to have seen this stone, including when it was in, you know, part of a chimney, right in the back of a fireplace. But so many people have seen this stone that its existence in his mind seems to be not uh, in question. And so that's the only thing that kind of stops me from coming out and saying that it's completely fabricated. Um, And that, but even with that, what I'll say is, at the current time, I remain unconvinced. Uh, And it is, you know, it's that it's could be a tall tale used to drum up investors. As then that and that idea, that idea that it's a tall tale used to drum up investors is as good a theory as any I've heard, including the theory that such a thing even existed. And this specific article that Gary that you sent kind of goes along with that, because it's another example of how that was absolutely done in the early stages, certainly in the first century of the Oak Island research and the Oak Island treasure hunt, that these guys were desperate for investors and needed to convince investors that they were going to return their investment with some great gold treasure of Captain Kidd. And they needed to kind of, you know... Tell a little, lie, little stories, little lies about that kind of stuff. Anyway, thank you, Gary. Keep up the great work. Keep sending me in this stuff you find. It's absolutely fascinating. And that's all for this week's questions. If you have any questions or comments for next week's show, just drop me an email, digginoakisland at gmail.com. All right, it's time to get into the episode. Season 9, episode 2, called The Gold Medal. We're going to start over on lot 15. This week, uh, we see Gary Drayton along with his digger of the week, and that is Rick Lagina. I always like seeing Rick along with Gary because Rick always has a sort of a wry, knowing smile. Whenever Gary goes into his little sort of Gary Drayton character that he goes into all the time here. Um, and I, I always, I always laugh whenever I see Rick just sort of looking at him like he's crazy. Anyway, if you remember last season, we saw actually saw Gary detecting over here and what he was doing was he was getting a detect, He was getting a hit and he was putting these flags down wherever he got a good hit so they can go back and dig it up. And I think if I'm not mistaken at the time, there was something keeping them from doing that, a regulation of some kind. Now, This brings us into a lot of talk, and we're gonna get this a lot this year, about something called the CCH, something that they refer to and that I'm gonna refer to as the CCH for the rest of this podcast. And that stands for the Nova Scotia Department of Communities, Culture, and Heritage. And what we find here, we talked about this last week, what we're really getting here is that the government has well and truly stepped into the picture in this, right? Basically, the long and short of it is this. They can do whatever they want with the money pit area. Now, the money pit area kind of had its own, what do we say, um, exception for regulation written into the into a law into an act that goes back decades, right? Because what more could you do? <laughs> I mean, there's been so many holes. Robert Dunfield excavated a giant pe- I mean there's been so much has been destroyed in this area and all the way through to Smith's Cove too that there I mean there's really nothing to protect. There's nothing left here, right? But everywhere else now, everywhere else on the island, the CCH is trying to keep sort of a lid on um what do we, the sort of bulldozing kind of thing, right? They're now paying attention to make sure that whatever the guys come across is preserved and not just ripped up by an excavator, which if you ask them is exactly what they would do because no matter what they say on the show, right? No matter what you hear, this is a treasure hunt, guys, right? I mean, Rick seems to have a great respect for the history. Certainly Laird Niven does and all that kind of stuff too. But if they think there's treasure there, you can bet your bottom dollar they are digging, no matter what they might pull apart, and that's that's just that's just treasure hunting, right? So we hear a lot of belly aching about the CCH here for sure, and we're gonna get that all year long, um, and it has pretty big reach across the entire spectrum of what's going on here. Anyway, Gary and Rick pull up an ox shoe, more <laughs> more um, affirmation of the. Something a fact that we already know that Oak Island was farmed for many, many, many decades even before 1795. Later on, they find a corroded nail. We don't really look much into that. And then towards the end of the episode, Gary picks up what he looks like. What looks like to all of us is uh, how to best describe it—a round cannonball. He calls it round shot. Uh, it could be kind of grape shot as well, which I always thought was a little smaller than that. But I think in some decades, grape shot was used a little bit bigger. Basically. These are cannonballs, right? They could be one cannonball shot out of a small deck gun, or you could put multiple of these into one cannon and shoot, right? So that you're kind of spraying almost like a shotgun. I I have to say that this isn't the first one of these they found. And now it's kind of getting weird to find another one, especially right on the surface. So our friend Steve on Patreon during our live discussion wrote, um, who was shooting at whom on the island in the 1600s? And you know what, Steve, I think, especially if we start to find more of these, that is the question here to answer. And that is an interesting, uh, that is a little interesting riddle that the Oak Island team may need to uh, get an answer for. Okay, let's head over now to the swamp where the guys are joined by Laird Niven, clearly now the man in charge over here, right? And archaeologist Miriam Emerald. Now, last year, we called Miriam Emerald, because that's what it looks like, and that's sort of the anglified version. Uh, and after what it must be dozens and dozens of episodes with Miriam on there, someone finally walked up to her and asked her, how do you pronounce your last name? And And... Uh, in great Canadian um, tradition, she pronounces it with a very French uh name, you know, very French accent. Amiro. Uh I'll just call her Miriam. How's that? Uh, we see the team excavating more of this stone road, which we're referring to sometimes as the stone wharf. <laughs> this is certainly the early focus of the work being done here in the swamp by the team this season. Now you see the aforementioned Billy Gerhardt on the excavator, and he hits what can only be described, and they describe it this way, as a wooden structure. So what follows is a discussion about something called the Jack Adams mystery box. So if you didn't follow what they were saying or you're not really sure what what they went at here, let me explain. Fans of the show will remember this mystery box. It's been mentioned more than once before. And in fact, the first time it was ever mentioned goes back all the way to the early part of season one. Jack Adams was a caretaker on the island in the 1930s, and he was also, if I'm not mistaken, a worker, one of the sort of laborers that was in the, uh, the the search party of the of Chapel or maybe even Gilbert Hedden back in that era. And then he stayed on the island year round as a caretaker. All of this is uh, that we're hearing here is about a mystery box, which is extremely non-specific, which shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone. So during Adams' time on the show, he quote unquote, discovered, and that's in quotes for a reason, I'll get to, he discovered a box in the swamp. The problem is Jack Adams never retrieved the box. He never pulled it out. He never actually found it. So again, we have to put quotes around the word discovered. What he did is he hit something while probing around the island, um, while probing around the swamp. And that's as much as you could say, he hit something. He thought it was a box. He doesn't really know. Um, Anyway, fast forward a couple of decades, and now the Restalls are on the island, and they learn of this box through Mel Chapel. Now, at the time when the Restalls were on the island, they were essentially working for Chapel. Chapel was the owner and the guy who sort of divvied out who gets to search. Now, you know, and as the story goes, Mel Chapel came to them and said that Adams is an old friend or something like that, and could you do me a favor? And see if you could find the box that this old friend of mine claims he found. So they stopped their work on a shaft somewhere, probably the money pitter Smith's Cove, because they built one in Smith's Cove too, and spent a few days looking for this. So what they built was something like, like a, I don't know how, what you'd even call it, like the top of a shaft, almost like a small scaffolding, right? Um, and so that they can probe down over the top of this thing and they never found anything now the show does a great job here in this part and and this is really surprising to me to show us exactly what the rest alts built and freeze frame that picture and look back at what (laughs) craig is hitting there and yep that appears to be what billy ran into here so the idea of this could be the spot where Jack Adams found his box is intriguing if you then accept that the rest dolls, I mean, <laughs> that the rest dolls just didn't find it, or maybe they got the wrong area and then that makes it, I, I don't know. Um, it's a great little piece of Oak Island history, um, but I don't think it's much more than that. Later on, they pull out another weird piece of wood and it had something sort of born out of it, like doweled out of it. I don't know how you even explain that. It looked like a part that you'd put the seat of a chair into, right? As you put the chair together, or maybe even stairs. I've seen stairs built like this before. I'm not sure what it is but they never said anything more on it. So we can kind of put that in the same pile, I think, as that wooden pin type thing, that belaying pin that I was talking about last week that they found last week. Until we hear more on this, it may be an interesting looking little artifact, but I can only assume from the fact that we haven't heard much that it's insignificant to the search. All right, that's it for The Swamp. So let's take another short break here. We'll come back and talk about The Money Pit. So the show actually begins over the money pit where we see them probing around hole C1. This is the Charles Barkhouse hole from 2015 where they found uh, on a camera a potential piece of gold. Um, it's, this is also the spot where these traces of gold and silver have been found. This, the C1 is sort of the, the uh, most popular borehole for the show where these traces of gold and silver have been found. So that's kind of the, the point that they use as sort of the marking point for us. Now, according to Steve Guptill, what they're doing here is they're actually following this trail of wood that they found some of last year and now to this year as well, in between under 85 feet and above 100, I think. The hole they're digging is called D2, and it's about eight feet southwest of borehole C1. Marty says something really fascinating here that made me stop, rewind it, and watch it again. He says in one of his talking head moments here that Dr. Spooner concluded he, quote, could not find a natural source of the gold and silver, end quote. Now, man, there is so much left out of that. Really? So Dr. Spooner did something, got some sort of data set, did some sort of research, maybe took samples from other places, maybe has other reasons, and we didn't, to, to conclude that there's no way that these readings could be natural. And the only thing we get out of that process, and the only thing we hear out of that reasoning is this one line, this one sentence from Marty that just puts it out there that oh, must not be natural. Oh, I mean, come on. <laughs> I don't know, man. I, I understand trying to make an exciting show, but if that's really what he concluded, why isn't it exciting for you to show us how he concluded that? Maybe they will. Let me let me not go too crazy on this. Anyway, down below 88 feet here in this D two, they pull up a sample of uh, with a lot of wood in it. They pull up these bags with these little core samples, and they find a, you know some of this wood and in there also a piece of metal that appears to be encased in cement for some reason. Although it's hard to tell because they're chipping at it with their fingers, and you never really get a good look at it. That of course brings up whether this could be a piece of the chapel vault. Or perhaps just something searcher-related. Now, the conclusion a while ago was that maybe with one of their giant caissons, they had moved the chapel vault, so I assume um, they could also have chipped it, destroyed it, anything like that. So all of that could be possible. Uh, They're also speculating that it could just be searcher-related, and that goes back to, I think, the question earlier in the show, in the podcast here, about whether or not you know, the, the silver could be from welding the cans together. Well, I can't imagine that's the only thing they would have welded together in the 200-year history of digging things down there. I mean, it certainly is a piece of slag. It looks like a piece of metal. They don't really defining what it is or what it could be used for. You really can't. So it could be anything in my mind, you know, and maybe that's it. Maybe it is search related. It's a lot of speculation here, but it's really impossible to tell exactly what we're looking at and why. Anyway, later they take this piece to my new favorite place on the island, the archaeology trailer, (laughs) to be tested. And the analysis shows plenty of different metals, including bits of gold. Now, I'm not going to pretend I know what this means, uh, but it's hard to not speculate wildly here and to finally start being swayed by that kind of wild speculation. Dr. Spooner, kind of says it best, where he says that the results are, quote, provocative right where you would expect to find provocative results. Meaning this is the depth we'd be looking for for the money pit, right around 100 feet. And here we are finding things like this. Now that seems like a heck of a coincidence. Who knows? Our friend Ryan on the live Patreon discussion said it really well. He said, quote, I try to be objective. I try to follow the science, et cetera. So I'm surprised to say I'm starting to believe there may actually be something down there, end quote. I mean, Ryan, I <laughs> fingers crossed. Later on in the show, we see Marty, Rick, and Alex Lagina uh, driving the island in a now-familiar black SUV, and Rick shows them this piece of uh, metal and says that they're heading to the war room to hear what Craig Tester has to say about results from the carbon dating done on the wood that came up with this same piece of metal. The results that Craig gives us uh, dates the wood from 1488 to 1650, decidedly well before searcher activity. And even if the carbon dating is off, there's not a lot of people involved in carbon dating who would tell you it'd be off by that much, if that makes sense to you. So what we have here is pre-searcher wood. And it's the same dating that they found in wood in the similar area. Some of this wood that they were following, as Steve Guptill said at the beginning of all this. So we have pre-searcher wood. We have a weird piece of metal. And and this metal contains traces of gold. And they're all in an area that we're expecting to look, finally. In an area where, if we believe the money pit is still there and still undisturbed, would be right about at this spot. I mean, I got to tell (laughs) you... (laughs) <laughs> I'm with Ryan. If you're not excited now, you know, if this doesn't get you going after all these years, man, it may be time to find a new show to watch. <laughs> all right, that's going to do it for another episode of the Diggin' Oak Island podcast. Shameless plug time Produce another podcast called Sit Downs and Sessions. Me and my friend and radio host Chris Poe sit down over a drink or two. Talk about pubs, music, politics, the paranormal—basically anything two guys would talk about at a bar. Uh, Give it a listen. You can find sit-downs and sessions on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or all the usual places. It doesn't come out regularly; comes out, you know, every once in a while. And uh, we just recently concluded an interview with a great singer-songwriter from the coast of Maine called named Judd Caswell. Uh, He plays us some of his songs, and there's there's some great stuff on there. I think you really enjoy it. Also, as also mentioned in the uh, in the listener section, listener question section. I'm back on the air as a DJ every Wednesday afternoon from two to five p.m. on WDVR FM. You can find me hosting the Bourbon Street Bistro from two to four. That is a show that plays the music of New Orleans. And then from four to five, I host a show called Island Vibes, where we play music with kind of have a little bit of a tropical feel to it. You can go, if you're not in the uh, West Jersey, Eastern Pennsylvania area, if you are, you can tune in to 89.7 FM WDVR, or you can listen anywhere in the world, wdvrfm.org, or you can just tell Alexa to turn on WDVR, apparently. That's what they tell me. I don't know. I don't talk to Alexa. And don't forget, you can really help out the show by going to become a patron. If you think that this show is worth like five bucks a month to you, then head over to patreon.com slash Island to learn more and how you can help. Also, if you're enjoying the Diggin' Oak Island podcast, I ask that you please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your shows. Thank you, thank you so much to everyone who's done that already. I really do appreciate you taking the time to do that, and I certainly appreciate the kind words. And again, if you have any questions or comments that you want to send to me directly, please do so, island at gmail.com. Keep in mind, I'll probably answer it here on the show, so if you don't want me to do that, you don't want your question read aloud to the audience here, then just leave me a note of that, and I'll do the best I can to answer you privately. Don't forget, follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. Just go to at Digging Oak Island. And until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Digging Oak Island.